Okay, let's do this. Welcome to LocoCast, episode two. I'm recording here with Craig Maloney. How was your holiday, Craig? Uh, holiday was pretty good, pretty relaxing. Uh, not a whole heck of a lot going on. I still have all my digits. Uh, none of them were blown off by any fireworks or anything like that. So. Oh, no fun explosions. That's a wasted holiday. Um, yeah, I call it like the Christmas with explosions. Exploding Christmas. Yeah. Calling, <laughs> calling it the baby holiday. I think we were in bed by like 9.30, you know, with the uh, after the boy went to bed. Uh, we don't have the party spirit right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, you you drove in really late one night, didn't you? Yeah, no, we, we spent the last week and a half down in Virginia, and with the baby schedule, our plan was to drive through the night. We said, if he sleeps from 8 p.m. to 5 a.m., which is what he tends to do, that was my driving window, and it was just enough to get to Virginia and just enough to get back. So we came rolling in at 5.30 in the morning on uh, Friday morning. And uh, I had, you know, I, I drove the whole way through the night, so it took a little bit of catching up for some sleep this weekend, for sure. Good deal. So, want to get this, light this candle? Yeah. So, first off, I wanted to uh, say, hey, we are on episode two. What do you know? Um, we didn't get chased off the uh, internet yet, and Woo-hoo. we had a lot of good feedback. We appreciate everyone uh, throwing the comments in the uh, in the on the website, and uh, we got some, you know, some people backing us saying it was some good stuff. And so, we're gonna keep trying this out. Evidently, it's not a complete waste of at least some people's time. So, that was good to hear. I want to thank everyone for their feedback and support. I want to encourage you guys to keep it up because obviously we want to get better and to change and, and uh, you know make this thing worthwhile for everyone's time. And the only way we can do that is to get your guys' opinion. So, along those lines, keep posting in the, on the blog. And we also got up and running the feedback uh, email address. It's feedback at lococast.net. So feel free to email us with uh, any questions, concerns, things we got wrong that you really have to correct us on, and we'll we'll try to uh, get those worked into future podcasts. Sounds good. All right. First thing I wanted to do, I have to, I have to completely geek out a little bit here. Um, I you know we're doing this podcasting, and anyone that does podcasting, you've you've heard the term, you know, the name Leo Laporte. It's kind of hard to miss, I'd imagine. Who is Leo Laporte? Yeah, I know. Yeah, he's completely anon- anonymous fellow here. Um, so I listened to a few of his podcasts. Uh, the one I started listening to just recently was a Google podcast. And they got talking about um, the Google command line interface thing that Google released the other day where you can interact with the Google services via the command line, which for someone like me who believes a command line is like the one true interface to all things, um, it was like, oh, yay. And uh, while they were discussing this, Leo came out and admitted that he uses Z Shell or ZSH on all his machines. And I never really thought of, you know, Leo as that geeky, but when he said that, I had I had to give him some props. You know what, Leo? Shout out to you there. Running ZSH on your machines instead of Bash makes you as giving you some extra geek points in my book for sure. As I am a big, big ZSH proponent. I'm trying to get everyone around me on it, and I have not yet converted Craig yet, much to my dismay. Yeah, it's coming soon, sooner or later. It is a, it is a very interesting little shell, and uh, I I, I got to stop sucking my thumbs, you know, playing around with Bash and just dip into the manly ways of ZSH. Everyone so, that's everyone that's come to this dark side has I haven't had anyone I know. really go back yet. The uh, the, <laughs> the only complaint I had was my boss tried it out and he had an issue with ZSH where auto completing NFS mounts was slow for him for some reason and i was like dude i don't know i mean not nfs mounts they were um they're windows mounts from across uh, i don't know he's got some weird mounts from the uh the work file system stuff at work and auto completing that was ungodly slow in zsh and i was like dude i don't do that so i, I can't help you there i don't know 
But that brings <laughs> us stop doing that. That brings me to my next thing because one thing I did do as ESH is I gave uh, an open space talk at the last Pi Ohio and it was really well received. And I also did a lightning talk on it. And Pi Ohio is coming back up. And I wanted to kind of throw some events out there. And Pi Ohio is number one on the list here. It's uh, July 31st and August 1st. If you don't know, um, everyone gets together in Columbus, Ohio for a Python conference. They started it, uh, I think, two years ago. And the first year was this little small. They fit it in the library in like three rooms. And last year, they actually had a building on campus. And it was just awesome. They had several tracks growing, going at the same time. Lots of good uh, material. And as a someone who wanted to develop Python, that was a real big you know, big thing for me to get to go down there and see some stuff and talk with some people. Um, and uh, I'm actually giving a talk this year uh, on Python packaging with uh, and virtual well, using VirtualEnf and um, pip and and tools like that. So um, if you're in the area, if or if you're not, come on out, come down uh, for the for the weekend there. It's a really it's great down in Columbus, Ohio, right? Yep, down in Columbus. It's actually on the Ohio State campus. It's in a different building this year. But the uh, the list of talks is up, and there's some good-looking stuff in there. I, I can't wait to go now. Um, I mean, I already couldn't wait to go because I'm obviously talking this time. And, uh, you know, since I got the job doing Python back in February here, I'm, I'm all geeked out that this is, like, my time to, to do some uh, Python giving back, you know, give a little talk here at the conference and hopefully be able to share some material back out to some people. So I want to yep, throw I'm that out. I'm going as well. Yes. Well worth the time, I think. Um the next one is we got to go back to some Linux fun here. Um, Ohio Linux Fest uh, has extended their submission deadline for submitting presentations to July 7th, which we're recording this today on the 5th. And so if we get this out tomorrow or the 7th, you might just hear this in time to be able to get your presentation in. Uh, but well, if you, you should already have it in already, right? You should be waiting for the last minute. It should have been done, you know, last week on the thirtieth. Who would who would do that? I mean, who would have their yeah. presentation not submitted yet? Um, oh, I keep thinking I should submit again this year. I didn't get in that last year, but um, I haven't I haven't done it yet. I was meaning to take advantage of the extension, but I'm running out of time, aren't I? Two days. But the conference itself is September 10th through 12th. Um, it's a really good, um, you know, they really aim um, for the beginners, um, I, I tend to feel like. As an advanced Linux user, I have to admit, I skipped one year because I was like, you know, I don't really need all the beginner presentations. I really want some more advanced stuff. And they have so they have a little bit there. But if you're a beginning Linux user, you definitely want to go. Um, some great material. You get to hang out with some, some great people. And it's actually fairly large. Uh, I'm kind of surprised that, you know, how big the Linux community in this, this Midwest area here can actually be for that. Well, and it keeps growing as well. Um, I I don't know if I'm going to be able to make it or not this year. I, I really want to go, but we'll see what happens. Uh-oh. Yeah, uh, I've been taking a lot of time off of work, so and with with certain medical issues that I've had, but that's another <laughs> story for another time. Yeah, I think I think we'll save that for my wife's medical podcast. <laughs> um, no, that's a, that's a shame, though. I'm sure we'll get some peer pressure on you before that, though, because it, it does tend to be a thing that we kind of go out there in mass and try to take over and turn it into like a little mini Ubuntu conference. Yeah, it's it's definitely a lot of fun. Um, if you're if you're out in the Columbus area again, uh, do check it out. It's over at the Columbus uh, Convention Center, uh, which is very spacious. A lot of interesting stuff goes on there as well. Uh, Usually in adjacent areas to the Ohio Linux Fest, uh, so it's it's definitely worth checking out. Go and it. and it's free. Um, you can pay if you want to to get a T-shirt and some other accessories. But both of these conferences are free conferences, which hey, all the better, right?
so let's get into some some meat and material here. Um, I wanted to bring up. I, I was listening to uh, a podcast the other day where they they found uh, someone leaked some future Windows 8 feature list, and it's like, all right. I mean, in all honesty, at this point, I have I haven't used Windows 7, and I think I've got fewer hours on Windows Vista than you know than I have flying planes at this point, which is next to none. So. I really didn't care, but one thing caught my attention, and that was is they're looking to include some kind of app store. And the pundits in the podcast that I was listening to were really baffled, like, why in the world do you need a, uh, an app store? It's, you know, Windows already has one. It's called the Internet. You go and you search for, you know, software, whether it be from SourceForge or from, you know, I think they brought up Two Cows and Download.com and whatever. Um, but they said, you know, you don't need an app store. And I kind of got thinking, though, that, you know, that – Linux has a lot of people that say that they already have an app store, right? You already have, if you have, you're an Ubuntu user, you've got a whole set of packages of applications that you can install at a moment's notice in one location. You don't have to go and bring them all out from all over the internet. But I really don't consider it an app store either. You know, I think the app store definition's kind of been set by the iPhone model. I don't know if you'd agree with that or not. Well, when when you think of an app store, I I think of just a list of packages that have been categorized, and hopefully someone has gone through and curated that list somewhat so that it's not just full of complete and utter crap. And to me, I don't know, Windows could use an app store or something along those lines, something where you can go, hey, I would like to find, uh, let's say, editor plugins or something like that, and you don't have to go searching around for stuff like, you know, Two Cows and all those other different places or just, you know, trying to hap- happen on someone's website out there that has exactly what you're looking for. I think having a centralized location is, is kind of nice. At the same token, I, there is something nice about if I was a Windows user and went over to some place like, oh, I don't know, Office Max or Best Buy, having a nice little box in my hot little hands waiting to, to purchase it over at the line. There's some. There's that nice little feedback loop, if you will, the, the reward of having a box of software in your hand. Well, I wonder. We don't get <laughs> as Linux users. Yeah, but I want to give Apple and and now with the Android phones and things, I want to give them credit because here's one of the big things about the App Store that I think uh, is why I don't think Linux has an App Store. And one of those items is that the idea that you know what people actually pay money for software that they just download to a device straight. They don't get the box. They don't get the warm fuzzy, you know, holding something in their hand. And I think that people are getting more used to that idea than they were before. I mean, you know, Microsoft's tried before the idea of we're going to, you know, lease you software or, you know, trying to do the various software as a service things. And I think over time recently with your various like web apps people pay for, like if you're a paid GitHub user or, um, 37 signals and all their various you know software apps that you can pay into but between that and and the devices these days i really think people are getting you know used to the idea of buying apps online and well i would i would say the the reason that the apple iphone and android app stores have been so successful is that it is a real it is a real pain in the ass to get something installed on a phone and streamlining getting software onto your phone i mean let's face it you don't really have a way of, of putting physical media inside your phone and having it stick, otherwise, other than putting an SD card in there or something like that, or micro SD. So the, having it so that you don't have to go to random sites on the net and try and download some piece of software uh, is a really good thing. Whether that translates over into Windows or, or Linux, I'm not exactly sure. I think the time, yeah, I think you're right that the time is 
more prevalent now that people are used to not having a physical piece of media. On the same token, I think downloading four gigabytes of software through my at least my slow modem here is a bit painful. Well, so here's here, this actually was really interesting because as I thought of this and I wanted to bring this topic up, um, John O'Bacon, who is the community manager for the Ubuntu project for Canonical, he works for Canonical as the Ubuntu community manager or Canonical. I'm not, really not sure where his he's a community manager. I don't know where, whether his title says Canonical first or Ubuntu first, but anyways, um, he has a shot of Jack little 10 minute podcast he does, and they brought up the um, software center, the Ubuntu software center, which has kind of been growing up as a replacement for people to find software. Now me. I'm a command line guy. I'm old fashioned command line guy. I like app get. I love grep. You know, that's how I find my software. But I got thinking about other users. And because this was a Windows thing, I got thinking about, you know, how do people find the software that they want to install? And I think the idea of an app store completely would apply to a desktop OS. Because like we were saying, you can get software from all over the internet from all these sites. But at the same time, you add a whole lot of complications to that. A, I have to find it. Um, B, comparing it's not easy. Um, you know, getting feedback and stuff isn't always the same, whether it's reviews on the various sites you find it on, or maybe there's no review because you're buying from the, the developer themselves. But on top of that, you get into things like payment processing. You know, I mean, am I comfortable giving my credit card into whatever site that I'm trying to purchase software from? Whereas I think people, you know, like with my Android phone, I buy software all the time. Uh, and I don't think about it because I've entered my Google checkout credentials into the app store here, the uh, the market, and when I buy something, I'm not giving that developer my credit card info. I'm giving it to my you know my Google account that already has it for other purposes. And so I got thinking, you know what? I really do like this idea of the desktop OS you know app store because I think it does do a lot of nice things for users as far as app discovery, you know, and payment processing in particular. Well, the the app discovery I think is the biggest reason for doing a an application store. I mean, I just took a look at some of the games that are available on on the Ubuntu Software Center. Fungaloids is not something that I'm going to just pick out of a list and say, oh my gosh, I need to play this. However, just looking quickly through the list, you know, I can click on something, check it out, and if I don't like it, I can uninstall it really quickly from the same interface. I think that has a lot of value. Whereas before, you know, trying to figure out which packages needed to be installed and trying to find in a list of thousands upon thousands of software packages something that's you know interesting, fun, whatever, useful. That that to me is a lot more difficult than having the graphical list. Yeah, and I think that's where it comes into uh, in Jonah's podcast. They they specifically mentioned that that future things they want to do with the Ubuntu Software Center included ratings and reviews, and I think that's just so key to software these days, especially in the uh, the Linux world. Because I mean, how many text editors do we have, and how many you know web browsers even, or or just or how many different games have you downloaded just to find out that the game is not really all that it, that all that you thought it was when you downloaded it. No, definitely. So I, I think I think the store allowing you to you know to bring together everyone to to get the centralized you know I mean I'm an Amazon user and I love Amazon for the reviews and oftentimes you know you really have to go through and dig through them but I've I've both been saved um, and you know 
ran away from items I wanted to buy based on reviews from things. And so I think as we have, uh, the Ubuntu Software Center specifically, as it gets these kind of features, and I think a Windows App Store, these are these are the things I think that make an App Store, you know, potentially a really good thing for a platform. I mean, it's worked really well on these mobile devices, and I think that these same concepts still apply on a desktop OS level. Right. So what do you guys think? Let us know what you think about the App Stores. If you think that uh, they're really a boon for for Ubuntu and for Linux or for Windows or even Macintosh for that matter, if anyone uses that, um, are you know would you would you prefer to see something like that under Windows where you have a one-stop shopping area? Let us know. And how many of you guys are still like you can pry AppGet from my cold dead body? Well, um, I still am all about AppGet. I mean, I I'll switch between the two of them. Yeah. AppGet for the stuff that I know. The Ubuntu Software Center for the stuff that I don't get. Okay, I have actually this was the, I I actually had to use the Software Center for the first time just to kind of review and look at what bits they had as far as this App Store concept uh, goes. I've actually never used it, so it was kind of interesting for me to kind of poke at it a little bit. Um, <laughs> it, it's it's got a long way to go for some of this stuff for sure, but uh, I, I like the fact that they're trying to do it for the uh, for the average Joe. So that brings us uh, to the next thing I want to bring up, and this is uh, canonical specific again. Um, I I know I shouldn't do it, but I do. I, I subscribe to a, a, an RSS feed of various ZDNet blog things, and I ran across this uh, this article from let's see Dana Blankenhorn, um, where the the headline here is basically you know Burgett calls canonical membership part of new OIN strategy, and I was like, wait a minute. What in the world is Canonical doing now, and, and what in the world is OIN? Because I really hadn't heard of that before. I mean, have you heard anything? I, I am so far out of this story, it isn't even funny. <laughs> so, so, what the, is OIN? All right. So, OIN, and I, I'm, I'm just reading through the material here. So, if I get part of this wrong, feel free to correct me and, and let us know. But o, OIN is what they call the Open Innovation Network. And it's basically an a patent organization, a patent holding organization, put together by a bunch of pretty some you know some pretty big companies. You know, uh, it's headed by founded by IBM, um, and basically the idea is that we're going to pool our patents. And I, I've heard that this concept has been done. You know, that people are like, all right, we're going to pull together these Linux patents, base patents, and say, all right, you can use any of these you want. We promise not to use them against you, and you promise not to use them against us, kind of thing. And if any one of us gets in patent trouble outside of these patents, this organization will come to your defense and help with the whole mutually assured destruction of the whole patent system. And so, I mean, I don't know if you've heard about this this concept or not, that basically, you know, the Cold War of the patent system is, is that, you know, Apple has got gobs of patents that they filed for various things. So has, say, Palm, for instance. And if, you know... Apple were to, to sue Palm for saying, you violated these three patents on our iPhone. Palm can turn around and go like, yeah, but you're violating these 12 back from our original PDA days that we hold patents for. And because of that, the two of them can kind of step on each other's patents without getting in trouble because they're not going to blow up at each other. They'll both go down together. Right? So this is kind of setting up a way for Linux to do this, where you know Linux users who are part of this patent pool can say, all right, we have a set of patents that we now kind of hold as our 
our weapon, our, our nuclear cache, and we can step on some patents of some other people. Um, and I guess this actually came up once. They, they, they mentioned that there was a case where OIN came in and saved the day where Microsoft was trying to, uh, I believe it was Sue Novell. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm trying to look it up here at the moment. But basically then the OIN stepped in and was like, hey, Microsoft, you're trying to Sue Novell, who's part of this group, and we know that you're violating these patents that are part of our pool. So Microsoft, back up. And Microsoft basically canceled it and was like, okay, yeah, never mind, never mind, never mind. So you have um, these patent cartels, basically, that are trying to make sure that everyone plays nicey-nice with each other and doesn't try and get the upper hand with each other. Which, quite frankly, I think is a load of horse crap. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't quite understand the whole idea of software patents. Uh, I don't see where it is possible to... I mean, let's take, take chocolate chip cookies, Okay. There is a way for making chocolate chip cookies. If someone went out there and said, I am going to patent this way of, of whisking the batter in such a way so that you cannot make chocolate chip cookies the way that I make them, everyone would say, you're freaking crazy. So I having, having these little cartels in the Open Innovation Network, and quite honestly, I think that the Open Innovation Network is probably a necessary evil because there are folks out there that like to do bad things. There are folks that like to uh, purchase software companies and the intellectual property they're in. So you may have to fight against, you know, a tire company at some day that happened to grab a patent for something and decides, Hey, we want to make good on this investment that we bought in this software company. So I understand the reasoning for it. I just think that it's a load of crap uh, that it has to exist at all. Um, it is, and the timing of this was really interesting because right after I, I saw this article, of course, then the Supreme Court ruled on this uh, Bilski case, which was a, basically was a, a backdoor software patent case. Uh, it wasn't software per se, but it was the idea of he, this guy wanted to patent a process for doing things with mathematical formula applied to the market kind of thing, which is basically like, all right, you have math and you're you're applying it that same math to the market and that's not patentable it's just a way of you know it's a system it's not you're not adding any tangible alteration change you know really any kind of benefit kind of thing so and, I, again and anyone anyone listening to this podcast will realize that computers are essentially mathematical models that happen to show pretty pictures nowadays <laughs> but before i mean it was it's all math and so having having a mathematical model be patentable sounds to me again crazy so now we have the Bilski case where someone is trying to take a mathematical model and apply it and make sure that nobody else can do it. And, of course, the Supreme Court, what do they do in their infinite wisdom? They punt. <laughs> <laughs> they really did. They, uh, they said, hey, you know what? In this one specific instance, yeah, the patent doesn't apply. But we really don't want to get involved with like redefining or, or altering any kind of or setting any precedent for any kind of software patent or, or other idea patent, we're just going to say, this one dude, uh, yeah, you're wrong. And everybody else, just keep going about your business until Congress comes up with new rules that, that you want us to impose, uh, which was kind of a real bummer. Uh, but it comes back to, to basically saying, okay, so Canonical joined this patent pool, uh, which is probably in some ways a good thing. You know, it kind of helps protect them a little bit. You know, they're not off, you know... Uh, signing deals with with a lot of well i guess they've signed some deals but anyways it, it seems like it might be a good thing for the company as a whole um but it was interesting to kind of see canonical playing with some of the big boys you know uh with with ibm and some of the other you know large patent holding companies to kind of protect themselves so there's just a little something in case you didn't see that you know canonical's growing up and uh is definitely playing the uh the corporate game 
with everybody else, it sounds like. Yeah. I, like, again, it, I wish that it was an unnecessary, but I see this whole open innovation network as a necessary evil, and that sucks. Yeah, so we can all go back to hating our patents, our software patents, and, and hoping for a brighter day where one day they get struck down and we don't have to worry about this kind of stuff anymore. Oh, well. But, huh, yeah, so lobby your Congress people. Let them know uh, that you are not in favor of software patents. I'm sure that they will love to add you to their mailing lists and such. So let's go on to happier thoughts. Um, let's move on to books. So what are you up to, Craig? Anything new while I was away? Well, I am reading an, another book uh, called Your Brain at Work. And what Your Brain at Work is, is one of those wonderful little psychology, uh, pseudo-psychology books. It is by David Rock, and it is the whole title is Your Brain at Work, Strategies for Overcoming Distraction, Regaining Focus, and Working Smarter All Day Long. So the idea of the book is that the way that we normally think about work uh, makes us depressed, makes us tired, makes our brain not want to really uh, put it all into our normal work day. And the idea is that if you just change your thinking, uh, step back just a little bit and let your brain get out of the patterns that it's, it's etched in, you can move from having a work day where you end the day just thinking, oh my gosh, I didn't accomplish anything. I completely suck as a human being to, hey, this isn't quite so bad. Um, I'm going to make it through my day. Woohoo. So it it's kind of in that, that realm of pop psychology uh, where they take a little bit of neuroscience um, papers and such and then craft them into a narrative uh, for applying to your daily life. But it, this one doesn't completely suck like some of the other ones that are out there. Uh, it seems to be a little more genuine and a little less, uh, a little less. hey, you know, this is the only way that you need to go. It's, it's more of a, a workbook, if you will. Um, I'm kind of enjoying it. Uh, so so my, have it. my question there is, um, so are you having fewer rude comments on your code these days? or? <laughs> No, there's always rude comments in the code. <laughs> it's just it's, I'm actually taking the time to delete them before I commit. Oh, okay. That that precedes you to the happy thoughts, huh? Um, interesting. Uh, you let us know how that uh, how that changes, uh, gets you going there. It kind of. I thought at first when I saw this that it was going to be along your lines of, um, you know, we know you're a, a big lover of the uh, the GTD getting things done, you know, methodology of of running your work life and stuff. So I'm. Well, funny I, you should mention that because a lot of the things that are mentioned in GTD and in, in the David Allen books are also mentioned in this book. So there, there's a little bit of of that again pop psychology type thing where you take you know little bits and pieces and turn it into your own little narrative about how your brain works and such. But on the same token, it, it's also a bit of reinforcement for some of those concepts. Well, that's good. Sometimes you need to. A little slight brain adjustment. Um, some of us more than others, that's for sure. Hey, it's just software, right? Yeah. 
Um, I got a couple books for you. This uh, well, I guess not week, but by week or whatever. Um, I, I went on vacation with the plan. I'm going to read Pro Python, and I'm going to come back with my you know feeling all masterfully Pythonic and everything. Except that I had no internet, and I, I actually kind of had uh, not a whole lot of motivation to power up the laptop while I was away. Um, it was hot and it was busy, so I actually downloaded a book for fun, and I. Um, You've been hearing a lot about this Damon book, basically from the various Twit podcasts, where they they push it as one of the audible picks. And I was like, all right, this. At first, I was like, whatever, you know. I'm not. A lot of times, these kind of books that tend to be too geeky, I, I tend to try to look in and find all the flaws of everything. But I thought I'm going to give this a try. The uh, the whole concept is that you know this guy dies and he leaves behind a computer program, you know, the Damon that runs in the background and tries to basically take over the world kind of thing, kills people and all this kind of crazy stuff. So I thought, I, I mean, I can do a little murder mystery kind of thing. You know, why not? We'll give it a shot. And um, it was actually really interesting. Um, it's, you know, the some of the stuff's kind of glossed over. You know, there's definitely times where, like, the character's like, all right, uh, I need to hack into this, you know, server that I don't know anything about. Well, let's assume it's running FreeBSD with a old version of, you know, bind with this known vulnerability, and voila, I have Please root. tell me they don't do three passwords and they get it. <laughs> uh, no, not usually. It's actually pretty good about actually, you know, uh, using some, some well-known actual, you know, like, uh, there's some, you know, Windows uh, web server hacks kind of things and things. So, um... But it, it does a pretty good idea, a job, and it actually has a really interesting kind of picture of like you know of, of changing the world through uh, through a computer program running after the death of the author. It's kind of cool. So the one problem with this is that I didn't know it was it had a sequel, and so I got to the end of the book, and the ending appears, and I didn't realize I was up against the ending, and I was like, well, that um, leaves a lot to be desired. And then I saw it has a sequel, so now I'm halfway through the sequel now. Uh, so it's it's a good read and uh, something you should check out if you want to try to get a little bit of fun. Uh, that's that's not your you know not pro Python. On the other hand, the sequel uh, the sequel is Freedom. Um, the the books are by Daniel uh, Suarez Suarez. I'm not 100 percent sure how best Suarez, to say it there. Yeah, S U A R E Z, I believe. Um, and so I just picked them up on uh, on my Kindle here. I think I grabbed them for I think it was like nine bucks and twelve bucks for the for the two different ones, and um, you know so far good stuff. It's it's kind of nice to step away a little bit once in a while, and uh, these are these are pretty good reads so far. Uh, I'm very curious to see how this thing kind of closes up. So uh, I'm I'm kind of wanting to jump to the end here, but. Um, but back to ProPython, I did read some of it. Um, the ProPython uh, Pro by uh, Marty Alchin on Apress. And so far, I have. Per- I'm disappointed so far. I'm only about a third of the way through, I'll admit. So just click. <laughs> oh. Sorry. <laughs> you, you're, you're a tough act, man. Well, here, here's the thing is so, you know, I, I pick up a book like ProPython and it's got, you know, it's it's uh, what you'll learn. It says write strong Python code that will be respected by the community and understand reasons behind big design decisions in Python and, you know, write programs that can reconfigure themselves in Python. And I'm thinking these are cool things, right? But then when I go through, at least so far, it's like this is a list comprehension. And as of Python 3, you can now, or Python 3.2 or whatever, you can now do dictionary comprehensions and set comprehensions. And it actually reads more like my Python Essential Reference Book, which I love to death. Um, if you don't have that, go get it right now. Uh, it is by far the best. You can actually read through it. it all the API, all the, all the, it's got samples for everything. Great read. But it reads kind of like a mini, a mini Essential Reference so far, rather than some kind of grand, like, here's how to move your programming skills from, you know, from 
you know, beginner, intermediate, up, you know, intermediate up through to the pro level. So, I mean, maybe it's in the other two thirds. Um, I'll uh, I'll definitely do an update later on. But so far, I'm kind of like, yeah. So I'll hold off on spending the uh, the thirty bucks on this one yet until I finish it up for you. Will you Will you give a uh, a comprehensive review at that point? Um, I'll I'll definitely give it a, a better yay or nay. Um, I don't I don't know how comprehensive we want to get. <laughs> um, uh, we'll, we'll definitely see. I'll see if I can, I can get some notes together and things and actually kind of go through like what was good and what was bad, um, and where I kind of wanted more. Uh, because I, I think there really is a need, you know, especially if someone you know more new to Python is that all right? I can I can I can do list comprehensions and things, but I definitely feel a need to kind of like better organize my apps and better take advantage of some of Python's innate flexibility to, you know, to write some better code, and I, I'm not getting it so far out of this one. Well, that's too bad. There's hope yet, though. There's a two-thirds of the book left. <laughs> there are a couple hundred more pages. So, so that's our book section this time. If you've got anything, uh, any comments you want, if you've read these and you want to put your opinions out, please make sure to go and provide some feedback. The uh, blog is up at localcast.net, and the uh, email, you can email your stuff back to us at feedback at localcast.net. Um, other than that, I think that about wraps things up. Anything for you? Not that I can think of. Hope you guys had uh, as much fun as we did. All right. And try to get you guys back for episode three at some point in the future. Uh, signing off, this is Rick Harding. And this is Craig Maloney. See ya. See ya.